It's great to hear how God is using Kevin in his neighborhood. Would you join me in praying for him right now before we get into our sermon today? Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for Kevin and, and your life flowing through him. Thank you for his eagerness to connect with his neighbors. And God, we do just join him in praying that he would have intersections in his life with the lives of his neighbors, that he would cross paths with them, with them and, and just to be able to be a source of life and encouragement. And uh, God, that they would see something in him where he would have a hearing to share, to tell the good news of who Jesus is. And so, God, we just trust that you would continue to work through him. God, we pray that you would bear fruit through all of us as we connect with people in our different spheres of life. And God, we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you had somebody in your life who just knows you and helps you to feel that you are God, who God created you to be. For me in my life, that's my Aunt Din, or Dorinda's her real name, but I've always known her as Din, and she has just been such an important person to me in my life. She's been like a second mom. She's always asked me great questions and then been willing to listen to my long rambling answers. As I'm a verbal processor, I'm an analytical person, and people don't always have patience for that. But Aunt Din has always listened to me and really helped me to know who I am better by being willing to do that. And it's just such a cool thing to have somebody who knows me and who helps me to understand life. And uh, it's comforting. It helps me to feel comfortable in my own skin to know that there's just somebody who loves me that way uh, and will let me just kind of talk about whatever, uh, whether it's dumb or, or brilliant. But um, do you have somebody like that in your life who knows you? Well, as we continue our series, what were you thinking? Trying to nail down the right way to think about some important things about who God is and who he's created us to be and what we're supposed to do for his kingdom. Today, we talk about God. And we'll get into his essence as Trinity here in a few moments. And so you may be scratching your head and thinking, well, wait a minute. Everything starts with God. Why didn't we start this series with God? Why did we start with the Bible? The Bible came after God. God wrote the Bible. Uh, well, it's because while we as humans all want God to exist, we want him to be real and we want him to be good. A lot of times we come up with our own ideas about who God is. And if left to our own devices, we come up with some pretty harebrained ideas about who God is. And so God is more than what we can ever imagine or think. And if we are left to our own devices, we'll come up with error. But God has given us this miraculous book, the scriptures, to tell us who he is, to reveal himself to us. And so that's why we start with the Bible, because we need to understand what God's revelation to us in the scriptures is before we can really understand what it tells us about who he is. And so that's what we're going to press into today to really appreciate who God is. And as we get started here, I'm going to give you rapid fire some attributes of God. Some of these we, we've already taken as givens in what we've already said this morning. But um, get your pen and notebook ready. Uh, we'll look at a few of these characteristics of who God is. And so starting in Psalm 10 verse 4, we see that God exists. And the psalmist kind of explains what the folly of not embracing that idea is. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
So the psalmist takes it as granted, of course God exists, right? Well, second, God is knowable. Jeremiah 9.24 quotes God saying, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, third, God is independent. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. But God is love, so he wants us. And because he's good, he gives us good things. That's another demonstration of his love. Well, God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's omnipresent. He's unlimited in regard to space and time. God is spirit, and he is invisible. He's also omniscient, all-knowing. He's aware of all things at all times. And he is all-wise. He knows what the best thing is. God is truthful, and he is unchangeable in his being, his attributes, his purposes, and his promises. Well, God is holy, he is righteous and just, and he is wrathful toward sin. And God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, nothing is too hard for him. So to sum a lot of this up here, we could say that God is perfect. He has no flaw and he lacks nothing. There's nothing missing. And so if we want to make kind of an all-encompassing statement about God and his relationship to us that pulls together a lot of all of this, we could say something like, God is set apart from us and infinitely higher than us, but he has come near so that we can know him and be known by him. And that's a wonderful thing. Well, another unique attribute of God, something that we don't see anywhere else in the known world and in, in the universe, is that God is Trinity. And we don't see this word Trinity in the scriptures. Uh, it's a word that's combined from the Greek prefix tri, three, and then this word unity, right? So we get this idea of a unity from three things or three in one. And of course, those three are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are all one God, like Deuteronomy 6, 4 tells us, the Lord is one. They're all God, all three of these persons, yet they're all distinct. And so they're both one and three at the same time. So this is confusing. This is hard for us to, to grapple with here and to figure out. So if we just want to say one simple summary about what the Trinity is, even as we try to understand what that means, the Trinity is one eternal God who exists in three co-eternal, co-equal persons. And so throughout time, there have been lots of people who have tried to illustrate the Trinity and try to explain it. St. Patrick was famous for one of these. Apparently, he used the shamrock with its three leaves. Uh, and that's similar to the comparison of the Trinity to an egg, where you have one egg, this unified uh, thing, the egg, but then you have a shell, you have the white, and then you have the yolk. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
Well, the problem with the egg illustration is that it just sees each of the persons of the Trinity as a part of an egg. The yolk is not the white and the shell is not the white either. So this is the heresy known as partialism, where we divide God up and say he's all, these persons are all part of God. So that's not a great illustration for us. Water is another illustration that's used. And so we see water in three forms, right? We see it in gas and liquid and then as a solid. Um, and water kind of, depending on the environment, the circumstances, shifts between these different forms. And so people think, well, is, that's how God works, right? He functions in different ways sometimes. So we see the distinction within the Godhead. But the problem is that a molecule of water doesn't exist at the same time as all three things, solid, liquid, and gas. And God does exist as Son and Spirit and Father all at once in time and space. And so the water illustration breaks down for us. Another, another picture of this is light. And sometimes this is spoken of in terms of the sun, where you have uh, this ball of energy in outer space, the sun, and then you have heat that comes from it and you have light that comes from it. But again, this is kind of this idea of partialism. It's not all the same thing. So another, another way that we talk about light in this sense is that there's a source of light and then there's a beam of light and then there's a spot where that beam runs into something and, and leaves its mark. Again, it's partialism. It's, it's uh, breaking God up. It's not all, there's not the unity to this. And then uh, another illustration uh, pretty helpful, but still doesn't get us there, is a musical chord. So a musical chord is made up of three distinct notes all combined together. They make a new sound that none of the notes can make on its own. Um, they, it all exists in the same time and space. But the problem is that each of those notes can exist on its own, and it's something different than what it is when they're all combined together. And so the unity of these things is lacking. The individual notes are not at the same time the chord. While Jesus is himself God, even um, as he is a distinct person. So there's nothing in the known world that looks the same as the Trinity. That can help us to understand this uh, any better than what we've just walked through here. And we do have this little diagram here that shows some of this and it's based on a triangle and the triangle is another illustration people have tried to use but in that case again uh, if you are a side of a triangle you are not a triangle so it's partialism again um, but in this diagram we see that the father is not the son he's also not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not the son not the father uh, but each one of them is god and so it just helps clarify those relationships for us a little bit. Well, even though the Trinity is a little bit confusing and we don't see the word in the scriptures, the concept is all over the place in the scriptures. And right at the beginning of the testimony of the scriptures in Genesis 1, we see the persons of the Trinity active here. So Genesis 1-1, when God creates the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a fascinating way for the scriptures to begin, period. But 
we see that God exists right there in Genesis 1-1. So we know there's something, this, this one God, right? Well, Genesis 1-2 continues, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we get a second person in the Trinity mentioned here. We have God creating the heavens and the earth in verse 1. Now the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And so why would the author use these different words if he was talking about the same God? It's because he's talking about different persons doing different things. Well, Jesus is also here present at the creation. We don't see it in the, in the book of Genesis, but we see it in other places later on in Scripture. And one of the most clear places is in Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, in this great and glorious section about who Jesus is, really one of the foundational uh, passages in Scripture for Christology, for understanding who Jesus is. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 13, up to this point, Paul's been talking about the glorious salvation that we have and what it means for our lives. And so in verse 13, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we can see clearly here in verse 16, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Well, if he's not present at creation, how does he create all things, right? So it, we can easily understand that Jesus is there present in Genesis 1 as everything, the known world, is being created along with God the Father and God the Spirit. He just doesn't get mentioned in Genesis 1. But as we look in this section of Colossians as well, there are some other important things for us here. We can see Jesus's unique role within the Trinity in accomplishing redemption. Um, we can see that he's before all things, right? And he's the beginning. But there's also this curious phrase in verse 15, it may have caught your attention here, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So what does this mean? It sounds like Jesus was created himself. We know he was born, right? He, he was, uh, came, came into the world through the virgin birth, right? But that's, that's not the idea here. The idea is this heresy that's out there that Jesus was created. He was not always eternally coexistent with the other members of the Trinity. And so is that what this is saying here? Well, no, it's not. It's not saying Jesus was created. This idea of firstborn really has to do with standing. It has to do with privilege and honor. 
And so we, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you've seen this in action, this idea of the privileges and the responsibility, the authority, the honor that a firstborn son receives in a family. The story of Jacob and Esau is a great place to see it, where Esau is the firstborn by seconds in front of his twin brother Jacob, but he has the honor of the firstborn son. But he trades it away for a bowl of stew, his birthright. And so Jacob swindles him out of that. And then when Samuel is looking for the successor to Saul, the, the king of Israel, and he goes to David's family, he knows it's somebody from the line of Jesse, David's father, but he doesn't know who it is. And so he starts right at the top with the oldest son. And then he works his way down until he gets down to David, who is the youngest. So we have this idea of the privilege of the firstborn, and that's, that's all that Paul means here. It means that Jesus is above and beyond the creation. He is greater than it all. He is supreme. And we see that clearly in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate when he refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. But Jesus also does have this unique aspect of him that the other members of the Trinity don't, that he had human flesh. He was both fully God, but also fully man. And so there's all kinds of fascinating stuff happening in reference to Christ here in Colossians 1. But let's, let's stay on track here with the idea of the Trinity. If we go back to Genesis 1, then we see another clue for us here, again, in this first chapter of the scriptures about the uh, unity and diversity of the Trinity. Genesis 1.26, when God at the very pinnacle of creation is about to make man, what he says is, let us make man in our image. And so there's this plurality, this reference to multiple actors being involved in it. And it's as though the Father, the Son, and the Spirit just kind of huddle up together and they say, all right, guys, let's do this. Let's make man in our image. And so we see that the Trinity is just kind of a given. It's just part of what's being talked about right from the very first pages of the Scriptures. Well, another fundamental passage where we see the Trinity in the Scriptures is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is a passage, Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven, it's foundational for who we are as the church, as people following Jesus and trying to impact our world for his sake. In, in Matthew 28, we see this same Trinitarian viewpoint. Starting in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you, you saw it there, right? That in this act of baptizing, of putting the stamp on a new believer, going public for a new believer, saying, I'm with Jesus now. We're going to do that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're held as equal and all equally important to the life of the new believer here. So this Trinitarian perspective is just, it's right here. It's in the DNA of this great commission. Uh, but there are some other interesting things that we see here in these three verses as well. First, in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. 
Well, who is the only being in the universe who can give that kind of authority to Jesus? It's God the Father, right? And so there's this kind of mysterious phenomenon taking place, like why doesn't Jesus already have this authority? And so that tells us a little bit about how these relationships work within the Trinity, that the Father has this authority, this ultimate authority, but he gives it to the Son. And then Jesus, through the Spirit, gives that same authority to us as believers, like he's talking about here, because you have this great divine authority, now you can go out into the world because God fills all in all. You can go out into the world and bring people into the kingdom of God. You can see people's lives radically transformed because this authority has been handed on from God the Father. Another interesting detail, detail here is that at the end of this passage, in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, if you know your history about what's taking place here, this is occurring probably toward the end of Jesus' time on earth after he is resurrected. He spent about 40 days on earth after the resurrection. And he hasn't been back to earth since. He'll come again, and we're excited for that day, but how can Jesus say, I am with you always? Well, what, what he gives us, and we'll look at this in our next passage in a moment, is the Spirit. And so Jesus is speaking here when he says, I am with you always. It's almost as though in parentheses he says, through the Spirit. And we see this equality where Jesus says, it's as good as me being with you for the Spirit to be with you because we are co-equal. We are members of the Trinity. We are the same God, just different persons, sometimes doing different things. Well, let's look at this when Jesus gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's in John 14. He's talking again. These are some of his last words to the disciples uh, before he ascends into heaven. And so John 14, starting in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Just like Jesus said he would be with him forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So we have this amazing promise of God who will indwell within us. And which is actually an important concept, this idea of indwelling. It kind of helps us to understand what's going on with the Trinity and, and why the Trinity matters for us. Uh, but we're going to have this helper, the spirit of truth who will live within us. That's amazing. The infinite God living within us. And it's all because Jesus will ask the Father and the Father will send him to us. Well, as we jump down a little bit in that same chapter, John 14, verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so we get to see a little bit more of the function, the purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry here in teaching us and helping us to recall what, has, what Jesus has already taught us, what the Spirit has already taught us. And again, we see the reference to the Father sending the Spirit, but he does it in Jesus' name. 
And so that's why we see in the New Testament sometimes that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. So again, we see this unity within the Godhead. Well, there's even more that Jesus tells his disciples about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Starting in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I, Jesus speaking, will send him to you. So Jesus now is the one who will send the Spirit. But wait a minute, I thought it was the Father who was going to. Again, there's this unity in purpose, this alignment of activity that it's, it's not the same thing for the Father to send it as the Son to send it, but there's this alignment that they're both sending the Spirit. It's fascinating stuff. We don't quite understand it. Part of this is the mystery of who God is and how all this works. But verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now, cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And we understand that at least part of the fulfillment of that promise is the rest of the scriptures that were inspired by the spirit. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so you see this, just this mutual sharing within the persons of the Trinity, that what is the Father's has been given to the Son, and the Son is going to share that with the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to work to glorify the Son, and the Son is always doing everything he can to glorify the Father during his time on earth. There's just this mutuality within the Trinity. Well, we also, as we think about the different roles that everybody has played here, uh, we see that the Holy Spirit has this role in convicting and helping people to understand that we are sinful. It's part of what leads us to repentance when we trust in Jesus. And uh, there's reference in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7 to a restrainer we tend to understand to be the Holy Spirit. And there's this idea that because of the Holy Spirit's presence in the world, sin is not as bad as it could be. Evil is not as rampant as it could be. That things could be much worse if the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the world through believers where the Spirit lives. So we see some more of what the Holy Spirit does here. Uh, of course, as we think about the different roles within the Trinity, it's hard for us uh, to parse this out sometimes, and, and the Father can be difficult for us to pin down. Uh, a fundamental aspect of who the Father is has to do with his decree, his willing and directing events and circumstances. And uh, 
we tend to think that this, it's pretty, pretty easy to understand Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He's the one who accomplishes salvation. He also willingly puts himself under the authority of the Father, as the Father is kind of this first person of the Trinity, that there's an order in how the Trinity works, even though they're all equals. There's a, a willing submission that the Father might be the head. Um, but we, th we think of the Son as the one who accomplishes salvation. And that's certainly true. The Spirit has a role in us uh, receiving our salvation and, and living into our salvation. But the Father also was the one who willed, his the, willed our salvation through Jesus. And so if we think about John 3, 16 through and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we see some important things here about the action of the Father in the redemption of the Son. The, the Father loved the world, and that's why he gave his Son, in that he sent him into the world so that the world might be saved through him. So we see each of these different roles at work. The Father decreeing and willing events and circumstances. The Son accomplishing salvation primarily. And then the Spirit, who is generally the one who works out our present relationship with God. Revealing God to us through Scripture, helping us to pray, and generally guiding us. And the Spirit, like the Son, also willingly subjects himself to the authority of the Father the first person of the Trinity. So as we think about all this stuff, try to make sense of this, what does this all mean for us? I mean, this, this is all very fascinating theology, but what does it matter? Well, we'll talk more about the idea of God's image and us as humans being created in the image of God. We'll talk about that next week. But a key aspect of God's image is that he's relational. And the Trinity is at the very heart of that relational aspect of who God is. And we see this eternal, infinite mutuality within the Trinity, this unbreaking, uh, continual relationship between these members in the Trinity. And to get real technical with this, this theologians speak of the perichoresis within the Trinity, a term to mean the mutual indwelling, that the, the closeness is so tight that they mutually indwell one another, just like the Holy Spirit lives within us. And as the, as the members of the Trinity relate to one another, at the very heart of that relationship is self-giving love. And that God is so glorious that they can't help but recognize his glory and enjoy his glory. And so this idea of self-giving love that's so important to this relationship is important to us. This is why the Trinity matters to us. So as we think about self-giving love, obviously Jesus is the best example, right? He died on the cross to redeem us and to make us acceptable so that we could be with God. But we also see this kind of self-giving love at work in the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. And it's definitely the way to win in a marriage is when a spouse puts aside their own interests and concerns and they focus on what the other partner in the marriage is worried about. 
We also see self-giving love in the way a parent loves a child and how they give their life for their child's well-being and health. Uh, we see it if, with the child who saves up all their allowance in order to buy a gift for someone that they just love so much. This kind of self-giving love. This constant and inexhaustible love that exists within the Trinity. The Trinity is the basis for all relationship through self-giving love. And any healthy community needs this kind of self-giving love. And where we see it most importantly is within the church, that we are this body made up of unique individuals, vast diversity as we come from different backgrounds and experiences, and we have different talents and different interests, but we come together in this one mission to glorify God here on earth. And Paul talks about this beautiful picture of the church in Ephesians 4, in the section of Ephesians where he's really trying to make the rubber meet the road, how the church is supposed to act and live in the world. So Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1, he, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's self-giving love, folks. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we see this diversity that we've all been given grace. We've all been given gifting. And it's all complementary. It all works together for the purpose of glorifying God and bringing people into the kingdom. And it's like all these pieces of a puzzle that... You know, if you get a piece of the puzzle, you have, there's just an, an image on there. You can see part of what's being expressed. But when you put all the pieces together, it's almost miraculous. Oh, my goodness, I had no idea that's what was being depicted. And it's the same thing in the church. Any one of us can reveal God, but we do it in just a sliver, just a little shade. But when we all put our pieces together, now we see God in this fascinating way, diversity coming forth in this unity. And that's what the Trinity is all about, is this diversity coming forth in this unity. And so there's just this astounding aspect to who God, God is. And the most astounding part of it is that the same God who was present at creation and all three persons of the Trinity, that God wants to have relationship with you and me. The God who's created the vast universe wants to come into your life and bless you and lead you and help you to be all that he's created you to be. He wants to know you and he, he wants you to know him. And it's unfathomable. It's this unimaginable thing that God would want to do that, that the, there's this unbreakable interlocking nature within the Trinity, entirely self-sufficient. But God sends the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to die and to reconcile humanity so that humanity can be part of that same love, that divine love that exists within the Trinity. 
And so this should just lead us to worship and just to want to know God more and to want to be in relationship with him as he knows us and helps us to become who he's created us to be. And he's provided all that we need to do that. He's provided all that we need to enjoy fellowship with him. He's provided all that we need to connect with other people around us, demonstrating the same kind of divine love that he's offered to us. So let's be known by the amazing God of the Trinity. Let's pray. God, we worship you and we just praise you now. You are so much more than we can understand and fathom. And so we just, uh, in humility, um, fall before you and worship. And we say that you are great. You are beyond what we can conceive. But God, we thank you for what you have shown us. We thank you for the scriptures, what you've revealed to us. We thank you that you desire to be intimately involved in our lives. And we thank you for the, the picture of the Trinity and in the depth of your love and the depth of that intimacy and that we get a taste of that with your spirit living within us. Thank you for inviting us into relationship with the God of the Trinity. And God, I pray that we would love others in that same way that as you have loved us, that we would love our neighbors like you have loved us, God. Help us to do that. God, we thank you for empowering us and giving us your authority. We pray in Jesus' name by your spirit. Amen.